It is fascinating how time changes culture. In this case, our food culture. Just a few decades ago, we had a fruit in this country that was easy to grow and highly nutritious and the staple for Native Americans and early settlers. And one would be somewhat hard-pressed to find it today. Pawpaw, America's forgotten fruit, is our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. Your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. You know, it's always interesting when we pick up a topic that is so specific. And in this case, today we're going to be talking about a very specific fruit, pawpaw. And, you know, we got we got a copy of this book a, a while ago and we looked at the, the, the way that it, they've framed it. And it seems to be such a lovely story. And at the same time, ultimately what makes it additionally fascinating is that it's a case for something that's actually a much larger topic and that is kind of the the loss of indigenous plant species and and in in particular food species and so i'm really looking forward to learning about this very specific fruit there's something romantic about following a story of one specific item and then just metaphorically extending that beyond and seeing what the the macro trend is and how it affects the way that we live. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation today. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to me that, you know, we had in Marin County where in the San Francisco Bay area, Marin County, North of the Golden Gate Bridge was at one point really one of the largest pea growing areas. And it was also the main butter producer for San Francisco. In fact, Tomales Bay, a tiny little town in the northern part of Marin, with just a few hundred residents today, was at once destined to become the state capital of California. So it's so fascinating how food shifts society and how our culture changes food production in return, how things move and shift. And in this case, pawpaw, I didn't know anything about it. And yet, you're right, it stands for food culture, for things we forget about and move on from. Um, and then may maybe and hopefully they have a resurgence if they have a place in our society. So very fascinating and absolutely metaphorical for how time changes culture. And then we remember, hopefully, if it was valuable enough to bring it back. In this case, the fruit with the cutest name, Pawpaw, America's Forgotten <laughs> Fruit, a great little book by Andrew Moore. And actually, he will be on the show with us in just a minute. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with that interview on Pawpaw. Stay tuned. <laughs> 
Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit EarlsOrganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Pawpaw, America's forgotten fruit. That's our topic in this hour as we are looking at food culture and history and how fruits and vegetables have shifted and changed our culture and how culture has shifted our food production in return over the years and decades. And now with us is Andrew Moore, the author of that very book that's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, Papa, In Search of America's Forgotten Fruit. He's joining us today from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Andrew, do we have you on the line? I'm here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Welcome to the it's show. Great. It is America's forgotten fruit. I would say that most people on the street would have no idea what we're talking about, our listenership, as I didn't know and Sita didn't know. And uh, you know, we are we are really in, in the food world and yet maybe I've heard the name before, but I had no idea. You've written this amazing book in search of America's forgotten fruit, Paw Paw. What inspired you to pick that topic? Well, well first of all, thank you for, for saying that. <laughs> and, um, and second of all, uh, you know, part of the answer is, is that, that sort of uh, humor and excitement that, that you just expressed. You know, it's this <laughs> fun-sounding fruit, A. Um, and, then, and, and then B, it's, it's, it's really a wonderful fruit. It's the largest edible fruit that's native to the United States. And it's related to this tropical fruit family uh, called the custard apple family. And then what really gets interesting about it is what you mentioned, you know, that, that this fact that uh, most Americans haven't heard of it. So, so for me, um, I, I really went on, like, it was a personal quest. Um, I, I just was, was introduced to the fruit and just wanted to know everything that I could possibly learn uh, about this fruit. Before I knew that I wanted to write a book, I just, I just fell in love with it. And, and then from there, the fruit it engenders this kind of behavior, not just in myself, in, in many people, um, it's a fruit that has this uh, has for many years had this cold following, this underground uh, fruit people were were really into pawpaws, and so uh, for, for me it was really about um, finding out you know why we as a, a larger culture um, had sort of gotten away from this fruit, and, and um, in the process I, I really learned sure. that um, it had a great history and and also um, you know a really great uh, present 
Um, uh, a lot of really interesting people are working with the fruit right now. So, so there's an underground pawpaw revolution happening, and we didn't know about it until. Well, you know, Helga. One thing that's that's worth pointing out about this is that pawpaw has been somewhat of a, a, a cult favorite ingredient in the beauty industry for some period of time. There have been kind of some some major corporations that are that are using it as the superstar ingredient in their lip balms or hair products. And then, of course, fortunately for us, there are a lot of great natural beauty companies that are doing it. It's it's super high in antioxidants and vitamins. And so that makes it wonderful, um, applicable on your skin. I had no idea that it was a fruit that you would enjoy eating. And I hear you, Andrew, saying that it's part of the custard apple family. Helga, if I'm not mistaken, your favorite fruit in the entire world is also part of the custard apple family. Which one is that? Cherimoya. <laughs> Cherimoya, yes. absolutely, and and I'm so glad. And and Helga, have you had a chance to eat a pawpaw in your your time? No, um, I I do wait for that four week window of cherimoya, and now now you have me. I mean, you had me at hello, but right. uh, really the uh, cherimoya, which is this kind of dragon fruit like looking thing that people find for four or five weeks, fairly short growing season here in California, and don't really know what to do with it. And then I stand at the checkout and explain to every person why I'm buying these three cherimoyas because I just love the custard apple idea. It's all meat. And if that's in the family of pawpaw, can you describe a pawpaw? It looks more like a mango to me on the tree, but you are the expert. What, what would you, how would you describe it in look and how would you describe it in flavor? Well, well, so far you're doing a great job. Yeah, it, yeah to me it, <laughs> as well, it looks like a mango on the tree. It's got this um, beautiful uh, light green uh, skin color. Um, while it's uh, hanging from the tree before it's been kind of, you know, roughed up by handling. Um, and, and then when you slice it open, um, it's got this, this uh, vibrant yellow-orange pulp um, that is really unprecedented in, in temperate, uh, temperate fruits. You know, the, the fact that it belongs to this, this custard apple family, just going back to that for a moment, uh, the fruit uh, is the, it's the only member of this uh, family of tropical fruits that's not confined to the tropics. So it's really unique in that regard. Um, and so then that, that flavor that it has, belonging to this family, very tropical. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's commonly described as, as tasting like a mix between a banana and a mango. And, and while the flavor can be uh, more nuanced than that, and there are different varieties of pawpaws that have different flavors, uh, that's a really good place to start, and especially for, for consumers or, or growers who, who live in this temperate part of the world, uh, to have a fruit that has those attributes is, is pretty incredible. Papa, America's Forgotten Fruit, our topic in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we are speaking so, with the author of that book, Andrew Moore, who's joining us today from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, Andrew, we've covered a bit about the fruit, where it's... Um, relatives are in our more recognized food chain, what it what it looks like, what it tastes like. But let's talk about what made it so important in Native American culture. Pawpaw, it's native to the 26 states in the eastern United States. Um, so it, you know, it belongs to a, a wide geographic range in the eastern U.S. Um, and, and, you know, uh, unlike, um, you know, perhaps today's modern culture, uh, Native Americans made great use of, of the, the wild bounty. So, you know, and it wasn't just the pawpaw. It was, you know, it was persimmons, it was blueberries, it was, the, you know, the various nuts. And, and pawpaw was something that um, was, was absolutely utilized. Um, it, it was, a, you know, a nutritious, pulpy fruit 
um, that uh, if you were lucky enough to uh, you know live around a, a grove that produced an abundance, um, that it would provide a, a you know a great source of, of of food for for a month each year, um, and uh, it, you know it will it was well regarded enough um, in, in in various native uh, cultures that the, the Shawnee, for example, um, even uh, uh, celebrated a a pawpaw moon. So. Um, you know, one, one, one of the moons in their calendar year w- was named for this uh, fruit, which shows how they regarded the fruit, um, and, and also the, uh, how the fruit symbolized, you know, a, a time of the year. Um, you know, it was, it was in September uh, in this, this part of the country, and so, you know, it was a symbol of the, the winding down of, of the, the summer months. Um, and, and then beyond just food, um, in, in uh, ancient times, even up through... Uh, uh, the, the 19th century, um, the, the tree itself, the, the fibrous inner bark of this tree, uh, was used for cordage, uh, for making rope um, and netting. Um, and so the, the, the plant had, you know, uses as, as food, uh, but also as tool. Do you know why in your research did you find out if it's such an amazing item that was so important to American culture and even survival and such an important tree for so many reasons, why did it become, I don't want to say extinct, but why, why did it leave the, really, the consciousness other than the people who have a pawpaw tree in their backyard or who celebrate this fruit still today as a kind of an underground following Uh, pawpaw revolution item like on on average it's no longer part you can't find it at whole foods or you know at, at your average natural food retailer why right, what, what yeah. happened what happened if it's yeah. that f- and, and you know I, uh, obviously the real answer and is nuanced and it's, it's a long story but i i think i can kind of uh get to to the crux of it um rather succinctly um and before i go on um you know obviously there is a caveat that you know There are parts of the country and, and communities, particularly rural communities, um, that didn't forget uh, the pawpaw and, and who's, uh, you know, for generations, people have eaten this fruit. Um, but as you mentioned, by and large, uh, you know, the, the, the larger nation, um, you know, certainly in our cities, we stopped uh, knowing about the fruit. We stopped finding it in, in markets. And that was not always the case. Um, you know, uh, Native Americans ate the fruit. Uh, the earliest European settlers encountered the fruit and ate it. You know, it was an, an important part of, of our culture, um, so much so that we named dozens of towns and rivers and lakes in this country after pawpaw. So if you go to any of these towns named pawpaw, they're, they're named for that fruit. Mm. Um, there's, there's an American folk song, uh, that way down yonder in the pawpaw patch, you know, so we knew it well enough to write songs about it. Um, and then as you mentioned, Uh, fast forward to today, uh, you, you know, or uh, uh, 10 years ago, you couldn't find this thing in any of the uh, uh, organic markets or co-ops or even, you know, small farmers markets. Um, and, and what I think happened is um, it, it was a process of dislocating ourselves or disassociating with wild foods. The, the pawpaw grew and, and continues to grow in great abundance in the wild. And, you know, uh, say 100 years ago, If a person or a family wanted some pawpaws, uh, all they had to do was go to the woods, um, and they were there in abundance. Um, they, they thrived there. They were native to these woods, so they, they, they grew well. And, and so uh, that's really all the effort it took uh, to get pawpaws. Um, you know, if, if your family knew where sure. a patch was, you could go and get it. Right. Uh, but then, you know, over the years, uh, we stopped, as a culture, uh, going and doing these things. You know, we stopped going to the woods for food. Um, 
uh, and, and our food system changed dramatically, you know, became more industrial and uh, homogenized throughout the country. Um, so we, we had, you know, it was a process of forgetting uh, some of these more regional foods and, and fruits like the pawpaw. Um, and, and then at some point, you know, uh, if, if the, the fruit, if the pawpaw wasn't uh, being, you know, or any food really wasn't being grown commercially, you weren't really going to find it. But um, you could, so, right? You could grow them commercially or could you not? You can now, and in fact, people are starting to do that. Oh yeah, the co the country has changed a lot in in a hundred years, and and you know it's it's harder for people to find these wild places. Um, so it's it's to to my relief and and to to my joy, I think that uh, people are beginning the the great experiment of you know domesticating pawpaws or um, putting them in orchards and growing them like you would apples or pears. Yeah, and I think it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. More people uh, will have access to this this unique fruit. Uh, now that people are growing it, um, uh, you know, on small farms and, and also in their own backyards. Wonderful. Well, it seems like a huge opportunity. I mean, if we look at, I, I don't want to say niche fruits, but there is something really special about rarer fruits. And we see them show up in marketplaces and chefs and and home cooks and all kinds of people get so very excited to have something that's really unique and frequently limited based on the season. Cherimoya is an excellent example. I mean, Helga gets beyond the moon excited when it's Cherimoya season because it's it's a short window and it's really special and you enjoy it when it's here. And so... The fact that we have something like that that grows here on our soil as opposed to in Central or South America, um, it seems like tremendous opportunity to have right. a resurgence of something that people will really enjoy and feel mm -hmm. a deep connection to because it comes from our land. Yeah, totally. That's right. That's right. And it's, you know, part of, uh, part of this country's, uh, you know, heritage and, and culture. That's right. And, um, and, you know, we can go on and on on uh, various different angles about uh, w what makes this fruit exciting, or at least I can. Um, I, you know, I'm a, a supporter of it. But as you mentioned, uh, you know, potential for, uh, for, for helping people as well. You know, um, farmers have lost some of their, their potential for niche uh, crops. Uh, a small farmer uh, in Appalachia, uh, you know, a generation or two ago could, could grow tobacco, and it was a, a high yielder. And this is something that, you know, some local uni uh, some universities in the region are looking at. You know, what, what can help small farmers, and, and what a beautiful thing it could be if uh, this native uh, tree that has been growing in the woods all along uh, could offer some, some great economic uh, benefit to, to uh, the farmers of the region. Yeah, um, great, great. To offer this unique fruit. That's a great topic, and actually we do want to go into that a little bit more if you maybe have encountered other fruits um, that in your research that we you know were common at one point but no longer, or that farmers can absolutely, based on their... Uh, region grow as an intercrop or something like that to to have that niche edge in the marketplace that you know you don't find at retail stores but maybe at farmers market and there it can fetch a pretty dollar to help the farmer. We are talking with Andy Moore. He's the author of Papa in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit. Papa is part of the custard apple family, a mango-like tree fruit lots of flesh, tropical, even though it grows here in North America. Andy, stay with us for just a minute. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back with so much more. This is An Organic Conversation, and I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. 
Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is pawpaw, America's forgotten fruit, part of the custard apple family. This tropical fruit that does grow in North America is quietly making a resurgence, it seems. We're speaking with the author of pawpaw in search of America's forgotten fruit, Andy Moore, who's joining us today from... Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we were talking about right before we went to break the opportunity for there to be more niche crops showing up. And and I'm wondering if, you know, I know that your focus has been entirely on pawpaw, but in your research, did you encounter any other fruits that were once really treasured in, in North America, but have lost their significance and kind of their widespread usability? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, absolutely. The answer is absolutely. Um, you know, my, my focus uh, uh, writing this book was clearly the pawpaw, but uh, everywhere I went and, you know, whether it was meeting with uh, people at farmer's markets or farmers or just, you know, people I ran into uh, on the streets of some of these small towns that I visited, um, you know, they, they had so much more to share. Um, you know, someone may like the pawpaw, but they'll say, hey, but you know what I really like is the American persimmon or, you know, pawpaw's great. Try this maypop, which is a, a relative of the, the passion fruit that happens to live in the, or happens to be native to the, the southeast United States. So everywhere I went, uh, people were, were sharing these, these uh, forgotten fruits or these, these wild fruits that, um, uh, you know, are uncommon or uh, underappreciated. Um, so there, there were many fruits that, that were, were exciting and that people were sharing. Um, you know, certainly uh, one, one of the, the, the more exciting ones is, is the American persimmon. Throughout the eastern U.S., Midwest, um, you know, much of the South, the, the American persimmon is known. There's folk stories and folk tales about it. And it's, it's known as, as this fruit that you, you need to eat after the first frost. That's part of the folklore because before it's, it's ripe, it has this really astringent flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then afterwards, it's this sweet, delicious fruit. And, and so that's, that's one, of, one of the fruits that, um, you know, I've learned about um, uh, on this, this quest that I've been on. And I mentioned earlier that the, the maypop, um, which, is a, which is a vine, it's, it's also known as a, a past, passion flower, so it's, it's a relative of the passion fruit. Um, and this is another fruit that, you know, uh, has some uh, a history of being consumed by Native Americans and, and early pioneers, you know, may have potential going into the future. It's kind of strange that we, when we look at the produce aisle in a supermarket, we believe roughly, even though maybe we know consciously or unconsciously that there's more food out there, but roughly, really, our shopping experience seems to define our awareness of what's out there. I think most people would be able to name common vegetables and common fruit based on what we are encountering at the store every every day or every week. There's bananas and apples and pears, and then there's cabbage and lettuces and carrots and beets and onions and, you know, some sweet potato if you get lucky. And more or less roughly 30 items, maybe 40 items 
are the most common, and they are available, most of them, throughout the entire year, even though with different growing seasons, the, the growing areas go up and down the states into Mexico and then even overseas, like apples, even though there's a clear season here locally. Um, or originally for apples from August to maybe December, we have apples year-round because of modern distribution. Those funny native, you know, niche crops you may find at the farmer's market or not at all. Can you talk about in your research, how do you see have economic, biologic, and cultural forces at this point completely define what we eat? Yeah, you know, and, and we, uh, it's a great question. And we talked about it a little bit earlier about, you know, uh, these foods being, being wild foods that um, we, we uh, could just go out into the woods and get. And then as we, we lost either the access to those, those places or, um, you know, lost sort of the, the cultural need to go to those places because of uh, the convenience of supermarkets yes. and, you know, uh, what was offered, um, you know, through that, that system that we've developed over the past hundred years. That certainly, you know, uh, played a part in, in why we've, uh, you know, our, our, our foods and our, our diets have become less diverse. Um, yes. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's a lot of hope uh, going forward. We've seen a lot of growth of, of you know, heirloom foods and um, heritage foods and, and regional foodways begun to be, be revived in the country. Um, uh, there's a lot of great energy around it. And, and one thing that really excites me about uh, fruits like, uh, you know, the persimmon and, and service berries and, and uh, the American, uh, American persimmon is um, a lot of these fruits are, are highly regional. Um, you know, a thing like a pawpaw, it, it doesn't really ship well. It's got a short shelf life. So this is something that is... Yeah, that's why it's not attractive. ...to be grown yes. local uh-huh. and... Uh, yeah. Um, and distributed locally. So it's, it's really a boon for local economies um, and regional economies and regional systems. Um, so a lot of these foods, uh, fruits, you know, they, they may not end up at, you know, Walmart or the, the big grocery store. Um, you know, they, they, they may really uh, be a fruit that belongs to the, to the small farmer or, you know, to the small market, you know, regional regional co-ops or... Um, and, and thank God for that, right? I mean, thank God that there is regional identity that you just can't ship. It, it doesn't hold up well. That's almost, you know, the guarantee. If it in modern day shipping and distribution, it doesn't hold up well and it doesn't have a long shelf life, it's not an attractive item for, for yeah. logical reasons, right? The, the losses right. would be too great. And so in return, though, it does pres- preserve the cultural identity of that specific area where it can be grown and enjoyed and how fun if we That's, you know if we if we recultivate those those f- foods that we can one day hopefully soon drive through the US and be on a regional and regionally defined you know food culture that is only available there and can't even be shipped even if you wanted to that's lovely in a way that's right yeah <laughs> and and you know thank god for for the ability to ship bananas around the world, and, and they do, you know, sure. feed a great number of people. But you know, for in terms of flavor and you know, um, <laughs> just you know, really regional experiences, you know, yes. being able to ha- and have you know fruits like pawpaw for for small growers <laughs> and for small markets is a is a, a, a yes. beautiful thing. I think. Sita. Well, and I think that that on the flip side, you know, and, Andrew, one of the things that you were saying is, you know, this may not be a fruit that we find in Walmart. I think that's a really great example, and it immediately made me think of kale. I mean, maybe kale had a much deeper root by the time it gained mass popularity, but 
once a fruit hits a certain popularity and people are are craving it and requesting it, it does go into all of these major, major marketplaces all over the country. And I think a couple of things happen. I mean, people get access to a type of food that is rich in health benefits when there's essentially, I mean, it's not like it's a new health food. We're talking about foods that have been cultivated and grown and enjoyed on our, on our lands for hundreds and hundreds of years. But when it has a resurgence, people do benefit from all of the tremendous, you know, uh, vitamins. And, and minerals and antioxidants in a in a fruit or vegetable, but also it does create a lot of opportunity for people to grow something that may not need as many inputs because it does naturally thrive in this kind of an environment. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and that's um, a, another reason why why people are excited about pawpaw is because it is native um, to the eastern U.S. Growers in this part of the country, you know, aren't using any pesticides. Um, they're just uh, they're not yet needed. Um, and, and I hope it continues to be that way. Um, you know, things change when we grow the fruit in a monoculture, sure. you know, if we're going to start doing large orchards, and there are some problems. But for the most part, this is a plant that's evolved with the pests that we have in this country, and, you know, it's not affected the same way uh, apples and uh, peaches are, for example. Um, and so it can be grown organically, and, and you know, for the most part, uh, you get a young pawpaw established, and uh, it, it needs very little from us. It's, uh, it's, it grows very well here. We're speaking with Andy Moore, the author of Pawpaw in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit, who's joining us today from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In this hour of an organic conversation, I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Citarani Palomar. And you're bringing up something, Andy, that's really interesting. The moment we pay attention to something again, we will play with it, right? I mean, the pawpaw, as we know it, there might be five or six or how many how many different varieties of papa exists or is that only one variety that's a that's a great question um so you know there's there's one species we talk about a yes. triloba is the botanical name of the papa and, and really uh, every single tree that you find out in the woods uh is a different variety and can be um hmm. have a different flavor and fruit size and texture so really when we talk about varieties of papa we're talking about uh exceptional papas that people have either found or uh, even in some cases done some breeding to find uh, favorable characteristics. Yeah, that's what um, I was touching on, that, that, you know, the moment it might even be able to be crossbred with a grapefruit or with, you know, something else that is in the eastern states and makes it hardier maybe even to ship. I mean, the, the moment human creativity and love for something comes back in, you know, the sky's the limit. Who knows what will happen to Papa? And, of course, it can be turned into custard and jelly and spreads i would assume right right and that's and, and for a lot of folks who are have a you know a more scientific bent uh looking at the pawpaw that's one of the things that's really exciting about it is that um as, as a wild fruit it is exceptionally good and exceptionally large um whereas you know compare this to a, a wild peach or the you know the earliest orange uh tree mm -hmm. um what was that fruit like um you know and that fruit has had centuries of, of breeding to sure. get it to this wonderful fruit we have. So the pawpaw in its native state, uh, just as a wild fruit, is so large and, and so uh, tasty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> what really is its potential? We, and and we've all, like you mentioned, we've only begun to now uh, play around with it um, in, you know, the past few decades. Uh, you know, what's it going to look like in 100 years? Um, or in 10. <laughs> or in 10 years, certainly, yeah. And, and right now there are some cultivars that are available through some, some selection and, and breeding work um, that are just really exceptional um, and that, uh, you know, are very exciting. Great. Sita? Well, I would be interested in exploring just on the opposite side of our 
conversation and whether we're talking specifically about pawpaw or indigenous food species in general, what do you think is at stake with the loss of these? That's a great question. Um, you know, uh, when we stop paying attention to these, these fruits, you know, certainly uh, there's a loss of culture. Uh, you know, talked earlier about the, the, the folk song that we wrote about pawpaws. And, you know, in my travels going around the country, um, you'll meet people who know this folk song um, and who remembered singing it in grade school. Uh, but had no idea what a pawpaw was or, you know, thought it was uh, uh, just some made-up fruit in a, in a silly <laughs> song. Um, so, you know, we, we, lost, we lost that uh, when we stopped knowing about this fruit and, and when we stopped knowing about other fruits. The other thing that's at stake is, is, uh, is these wild, wild places themselves and, and, and the plants themselves. Um, you know, on the converse of, of what's at stake if, if we, we lose them, um, I think it's, it's also... Uh, important to look at, you know, what, what we gain from, from preserving them. So, you know, when we interact with these plants, you know, we conserve, conserve the, the wild places where they grow, um, you know, the, the other beneficial plants, that, uh, animals and insects that interact with the plants. It's all really interwoven, and um, it's really important that um, we, we don't lose touch with them. Yeah, well, what comes up, Sita, you, you will you always remember the names of the shows that we did, but we talked about eating the wild and foraging and we had you know many shows on just going out and and uh, foraging foods that are wild that you wouldn't necessarily find in the marketplace or can find in the marketplace and also can find really in any park or any forest if you know what to look for we talked about mushrooms etc well, i think you're you're talking about um, an episode we did with cammy mcbride where she said that th these are skills that you learn through through being passed down you know when when your yes. grandmother teaches you and then you teach your child or your grandchild, then we're actually we're preserving a bit of our land's history by taking this um, long-term relationship that people have had for generations with the land to identify native species that, could, that are edible. Yeah, right. I, I hear so often in this movement that we are an agrarian nation, and I would say, yes, we've become an agrarian nation, but we are a food culture. Any culture has evolved around food. If there was nothing to eat, cultures would not settle. So, you know, the, the, the edible wild, which everything was edible wild before it began to be, become cultivated, it seems like this is more the human story than many other areas we could touch on that came later. It seems like pawpaw, as you said, enjoyed by Native Americans and early settlers, it is really kind of is almost shaped like a heart, but it is the heartbeat of the American culture, those foods, and in this case, papa as an example. Is that what you came to at the end? Yeah, I, I would have to agree with, with what you're saying. Um, you, know, it's, you know, it's certainly important that we feed ourselves. Um, <laughs> clearly, that, that's a goal of you know, an agrarian nation and, and as a species. Um, and, and we can do that with just a few species, with just a few plants. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really things like pawpaw and, and some of these other fruits that we've been talking about that, that you know, make life exciting and, and worth celebrating, you know. Um, uh, the, the annual uh, hunt for the pawpaw patch, you know, going to the woods um, with, with our grandmothers and our grandfathers and our parents and, and passing down these skills, you know, identifying these trees and ide identifying these fruits. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really what, you know, makes, you know, Living, living the, the with the seasons and, and living with these uh, these plants, you know, um, you know, exciting. Um, you know, I, I don't think uh, 
pawpaws are going to and, and American persimmons and whatnot, they're not going to replace, uh, you know, apples and bananas in our diet, but they certainly have a role. Um, they, they've been in our, in our lives historically uh, as a culture. You know, they've been, they've been something we've, we've cherished, um, and it's, it's encouraging to see it being integrated back into uh, our lives and our cultures again. <laughs> so beautiful. Andy, what can people do? We're almost out of time, but I do want to end with that question. What can people do to protect and preserve native foods? Of course, read your book, and that is Papa in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit. Um, by Andrew Moore, who is our guest today in this hour of an organic conversation. Uh, that's chelseagreen.com forward slash papa. Chelseagreen.com forward slash papa. Chelsea Green, the publisher, um, very food focused, uh, wonderful publisher. And yeah, and you're the author. What would you say if our listeners, wherever they may be, papa or not, how can people? get into kind of a, a rhythm or mindset, what can they do to protect and preserve native foods that are long lost, forgotten? Boy, that's a, it's a, a tough question and a, a, <laughs> a big challenge that I think a lot of people are, are, are working on. Yes. Um, but, I, I, you know, I can look at pawpaw as, as a specific example and say, you know, um, what you can do is, is uh, you know, go out and, and look for wild pawpaws, um, plant them in your own backyard and strike up a conversation with uh, farmers at the farmer's market, you know, ask them if they're growing this, um, you know, tell them you'd, you'd be interested in it. And, you know, just start the conversation, talk about these things. And, um, you know, the, the more folks that are aware of it and the, the more folks that are growing it, um, just, you know, the, the greater uh, the diversity will be. And if and, people are not in the Eastern States, if they were, you know, in Florida or in, in Arizona, Would you what? Would you go online or or strike conversations with people at farmers markets and say what what have you not grown that you have a tree of that I would like or how did how did you even hear? Well, you you knew about pawpaw before you started your research. Yes, sir. So I, I was introduced uh, to the pawpaw because of a, uh, a festival in Ohio that actually celebrated it. Mm. But you know, getting getting to your question, you know, if you if you don't live in this this yes. uh, part of the country where where pawpaws are native, you know. Certainly folks are beginning to grow them in the Pacific Northwest, even abroad. But, you know, uh, it, it's really more of a, a lesson um, that I think people can take from it in, in, in terms of, you know, if you live in Florida, you know, talk to people who have lived there for generations. Or, you know, talk to your grandparents. Um, you know, wherever you are, there is something that people used to eat um, and that has been sort of neglected. Yes. Um, so, you know, strike up conversations with, with uh, some, of, uh, some of our elders and, you know, see what they remember and... and um, you know, see what's unique in, in your region because there's, there's so much out there. And, you know, that's, that's part of what uh, my takeaway has been from, from this whole pawpaw story is um, that just, you know, the, the richness uh, of our culture when we, when we look back and, and the richness of, of our wild places and, you know, what, what's left to be discovered. It's, you know, I, I love the pawpaw, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of many, many beautiful things that's, you know, left to be rediscovered and, and left to be revived. And nice, you're touching as, at the wisdom of the elders as the conduit, right, as the place to, or the access point to get to that 60, 80, 90-year-old history um, and amazing what can be uncovered there right. or recovered. Thank you so much, Andy. It's such a pleasure. Our associate producer, Kristen Ponger, kept saying, we got to do a show on Papa, and uh, I... Did not know really what we were, 
what this angle would be or why this is such a fascinating fruit, but it is the gateway into an entire culture that will define the quality of our own identification as humans in this country and really in any country as we are, again, a culture that has evolved around food. So thank you for bringing that topic and that metaphor to us and certainly Papa and I am in California. If there's any chance, to, I know it doesn't ship well, but however we can get one pawpaw over here, I would just so love to try that and <laughs> I, yeah, report, to, report back. I'd <laughs> love to facilitate, and, and thanks so much for, for having me. It's, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much, That's Andrew. Andrew Moore, Pawpaw, In Search of America's Forgotten Fruit. Great new book. Pick it up. Thank you, Andy, for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. Helga, I think you're just going to need to make a trip. Like next time you've got to travel and get over to the East Coast, go on a mad pawpaw hunt. No kidding. I mean, custard apple family. There's a friend in the Cheramoya world, a brother, that I can now. Um, I'm so excited. I'm going tomorrow. Uh, I'm not even sure if it's growing right now. It sounds like it's more like August, September, October. Yeah, I heard him say that September yeah. was um, the, the pawpaw moon back when when people okay. were charting the, the seasons based on the You know where the, to find me in September. Agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> so after after Cheramoya season, you can have a revival. Isn't right. Cheramoya, I think Cheramoya season's like in March. Yeah, it's April, March, April, May-ish, depending yeah. mm -hmm. on, on the mm -hmm. year. But so then, like, just about six months later, there you go. Yep, I'll be in the eastern states in September, that's for sure, <laughs> at this point. Papa, in search of America's forgotten fruit, and this is an organic conversation. How appropriate. Wonderful. Great interview with Andy Moore, Andrew Moore, the author of Papa. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we're going from Papa and the more forgotten fruits to the very much remembered fruits, all organic and fresh every week, what we find on the shelves, brought to you by Earl's Organic, the update of what's hip this season and this week. Here is what's in season. And with us now, as every week, is Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic. Earl, are you with me? I absolutely am with you, Helga. <laughs> you can count on that. <laughs> we just had such a fascinating interview, Paw Paw, America's Forgotten Fruit. It's kind of a, yeah. a, a you know tropical that grows in the eastern United States, very regional, doesn't ship well, so many people don't know about it. It has made its way into folk songs and... Um, it was. I was thinking of the season and what are we what are we picking today? Yeah. Well, first of all, fascinating. One of the, that's one of the reasons I love this industry. <laughs> I mean, I don't know anything about it, and I've been in the industry forever. I've. I've Isn't I've, that yeah so yeah, cool? Yeah, I've, I've I've seen it in in books and whatnot, but never have seen it at all. Okay, we'll go eat a papa together one day. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, and, and you know, we're going to talk about mangoes today, mm. and. This is an interesting subject for me because right now, June and July is the height of the mango world for mm -hmm. many, many people. And many times I forget about it because it's also the height of so many other things. Sure. You know, things, stone fruit. Um, so mango, the season actually starts, like many things, down south and goes north as 
as the weather permits. So we're talking Peru. That's really where our mango season starts and uh, in this part of the world for us. I mean, mangoes are worldwide, of course. And then, and then in, I'm, I'm sorry, I said Peru, I meant Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And then it, that's in like November, in the fall. Then it's a very short season, then it goes to Peru. And I'm also talking the organic world, of course. And then it goes to Mexico, and then it finally ends up in the United States. And we're enjoying the Mexican fruit right now. How far up into in the U.S. does it go when it's seasoned? It just, yeah, it just commercially, it just goes up to the the desert. Arizona, uh, I think the Imperial Valley, uh-huh. and that and that happens in August and September. And that's those beautiful, huge, gigantic keep mangoes. So that's Southern California, Arizona, Texas. Well, I don't even know if it's any anything is grown like that in Texas mm-hmm. or Arizona. I mm-hmm. know that there's a couple organic growers in in the desert that have been doing uh, uh, this mango deal for mm, five years plus now. California desert, you're saying? Yes, and that's mm-hmm. been it's really reached a crescendo the last couple of years. Right. Uh, we've doubled and tripled of what we sell, and I think that kind of duplicates the mango world in general, at least for you know Americans. There's as we continue to travel and and get uh, get adventurous with with our with what we're allowing ourselves to eat. You know, mangoes and other wonderful foods are just coming in to our uh, vocabulary, if you will, and and we're bringing them home. Uh, and being so close to Mexico and especially in California, the the mango is is. It's pretty familiar with a lot of people. And, and you're right. It's it's kind of dwarfed by this exciting, of course, stone fruit season. Everything is coming in. Apricots, cherries, yep. peaches now. So a mango, people associate, I believe, rightfully so, the, the peach and the apricot as a much more local item than a mango. A mango, even if it's now grown in California, I would think most people associated at least with you know Latin America somehow maybe India, Hawaii, those yeah. those regions. So the you know the apricot is closer and and yet it is such an amazing fruit, mango is and yes. and it has a, a season that is right now. What are people seeing and finding right now? I, I had a mango yeah. that was a little hard, and then I put it on the counter and it actually ripened on yep. my kitchen counter really well. It was spectacular yesterday after like three or four days only. Um, so yep. it seems like just as with peaches, it is something that you can ripen at home. Absolutely. And the best way to do it is on your uh, counter or on your uh, tabletop in your uh, uh, dining room or mm-hmm. wherever. And again, uh, you want to keep, uh, keep, if you have several, keep them separated. Keep them on a, on a natural fiber cloth mm-hmm. so air gets the air rate. Don't re- you know, tropical has it can have a very delicate bouquet. Now, some mangoes, of course, are very intense and, and acute tasting. Um, but refrigeration doesn't do them any good, mm-hmm. other than if you really need to store them long term. But you want to figure any any mango you're going to buy, you want to eat within a week. And the best way is by uh, by touch. The softer they are, the more ready they are. And would you compare that to a, to an avocado? And when I you see, like, I would say that's pretty close. Though you can eat it softer than an avo- you can an avocado. Mm. An avocado is soft as you, as ripe would be probably rancid because it, mm-hmm. it's so high in oil. Yeah, where here you're digging with sugars, and I mean it will ferment eventually, but that's way down the road. Um, so that really the softness that has really to do with your 
your appetite and your ability to appreciate different consistencies. Some people like the flesh very, very uh, uh, tender, so you want to let it ripen. Other people um, want them firm, so, you know, again, it's just by the touch you eat them firm. You may sacrifice a little bit of sugar for that, but it still has a lot of flavor. Mm-hmm. And, and right now there's pretty much two to three varieties that are very, very um, in abundance. The yellow that, one, the little yellow ones? Yeah, that's called an atoffo, mm-hmm. and it's also known as a champagne or a manila, and they generally are are smaller in size and have a very thin um, uh, pit to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other ones are the different colored ones, the, the red ones, if you will, and that's a Tommy Atkins. Then there's also a Hayden. A Hayden is a little more round, where a, a Tommy Atkins is perhaps a little more kidney-shaped. Mm-hmm. Both of those are very, very sweet. All uh, the, the Tommy and the Hayden have a more orange uh, flesh to it, where the Atafo has a very dark, rich yellow. So we're always uh, saying we should try those things in the produce aisle. It seems like a mango is especially a larger one. You can't just cut into it, and then if it's not good, you, you leave it. Yeah. May, maybe, a, you know, maybe a produce guy would do that for you, but you're saying if it's, you know, if it's not rock hard, if the coloring is good, um, that's, that's usually a sign that it's either going to be ripe or, or you can ripen it at home, obviously. Yes. Yeah, because as a, as a wholesale distributor, you want most of the product, it, this being in pretty firm. much any fruit, yeah. you want it firm mm-hmm. because, it's, because it still has to go through transportation. Sure. And many and think of a store, you know, they're not going to sell everything they get every day, so there's almost always yeah, yeah. A, back, a back inventory. So everything's got to have at least two or three days, what we call shelf life. And, of course, uh, you don't, I, don't, I don't think anybody assumes everything that you buy you're going to eat in one day also right. so you know shelf life is, is valuable but and a mango just get it a little firmer uh it will definitely ripen on your counter and you can enjoy it in a couple of days and you know some people are are intrigued or or challenged by the different ways okay i got this piece of fruit but how do i eat it and with a mango there's generally two ways there's there's many but the, the two major ways are one you You stand it on its end and cut it straight down as close as you can in the middle, and you just want to slide right by the, the long pit that's uh-huh. in there. And then you want to do it to the same. So you have the, these two halves that are not quite halves. That oh, you nice. Can, you can score, kind of checkerboard, turn it inside out, and it pops up in this beautiful array of little segments that you can eat. Um, the, other, um, the other way is is that you basically peel it like a banana. You would go along the profile of the mango, score it, peel back the skin, and then hold it like that and eat it like a banana. Yeah, or like, an, thing, ice, like an ice cone or like a, an ice yeah. on, on a stick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one thing is don't wear your best clothing when you, when you want to be eating mangoes. <laughs> they, they, you know, the, <laughs> the, the aspect of it getting all over you is, is very real. But boy, it, it's just... The, the flavor, you know, it's an exotic. It, it's, uh, it's a tropical piece of fruit, and, and what is so great to be able to get it. Uh, yeah, hard, hard to find something similar, right? I mean, it's so flowery yeah. and sweet and tropical yeah. and yummy. It's not like a pineapple. It's really mangoes are mangoes, that there's nothing else really close by. And, of course, you can eat them right the way you described or put them in smoothies or yeah. even and salads. 
Yeah, you can freeze them and all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they go great uh, for, in a smoothie. They're fantastic. Salads, people use them in salsas. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, many uses in, in, the, in the Mexican diet. Yeah, lovely. Uh, Latin diet, excuse me. So, you know, uses are, are boundless. Um, great. It's just such great food. Yeah. Uh, that's the big deal. It's just wonderful to enjoy. And this is the time of year to be doing it. Yeah, enjoy them now. Cool. And check out Earl's website. That's earlsorganic.com. Of course, earlsorganic.com for the update of what's hip that week, what's coming in, what's best in season. And that is what is in season. Thank you, Earl. Mangoes. We'll talk with you next week. Yes, sir. Okay. Sounds great. Take care. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back with another yummy story next week. See you soon. Bye. Bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash An Organic Conversation. Thank you for your contribution. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.